Hey, welcome everybody to the Now It's Dark movie podcast with me, Mike, and also Tim. I hope that you are staying healthy and well these days because we're not quite out of the pandemic just yet. How you doing, Tim? Doing all right. Um, didn't get a lot of sleep last night, but uh, <laughs> I'm feeling okay. Um, nice. And yeah, it's kind of nice here. The cherry blossoms are out for a short while, I think. They won't be here for much longer. But, yeah, yeah, that's right. Looks like it's going to be raining tonight, and you know who knows what it's going to look like tomorrow. Yuck. Yeah. Well, <laughs> they're here for a short time, not a long time. Listen, before we get started, I wanted to give a shout out to our patron, Cody Ferris, who just recently signed up. Thank you, Cody. And uh, we have a lot of good content coming for our patrons. If you are not a patron, you can check us out at Now It's Dark on Patreon.com. And uh, we're kind of maybe thinking of dipping our toes into Substack as well. We, we actually do have a Substack, um, which will just be, they have like a beta feature where you can use uh, podcasting because it's mostly a print uh, website. But um, if you check out Substack, we do put our podcasts up on there as well. Uh, so yeah, plenty of good content to come. But of course, for people who are not signed up, we have a lot of content for you as well. What's the last movie that you watched, Tim? The last movie I watched was Nomadland. Oh, yeah, yeah. I think that's the best picture front runner right now. Yeah, yeah. I saw it a couple days ago. It was pretty good. I mean, I thought that... Uh, I, I really liked how she used uh, the professional actors with the non-professional actors. I think there's like two professional actors. Uh, you know, Frances McDormand... Um, kind of her love interest, and then everyone else seems to be non-professional. Mm, yeah, yeah. And Trying to get really sort of uh, into the nitty-gritty and uh, real of it with the 2008 uh, economic crisis. Yeah, and there's a verite element to it that I really liked. Um, I did think aesthetically it, it was a little bit kind of underwhelming. I mean, she mm. kind of aims for Terrence Malick. Right. And you don't really quite get there. I mean, there's... There's a kind of mundaneness about it that I found a little bit kind of underwhelming. Um, but I'm definitely glad I saw it. And I think the the portrait of this segment of society, of these kind of nomads who have been shut out of the economy, um, is, is a really interesting one. And I think it's a very valuable movie to see. Um, yeah, so I would I would definitely recommend it. Nice. Yeah, that is one that I think um, will will likely be getting the Best Picture Academy Award. I mean, this early on, because I think the Oscars are in about a month from now. So a lot can change. But that does seem to be the, the movie of destiny so far. Yes, yes. I wanted to ask you the same question, though. What's the last movie you've watched? Um, the last movie I watched, actually, was not one that was current. The last movie I watched was Dog Day Afternoon with oh, uh, nice. the Al Pacino, Sidney Lumet film. Awesome. Yeah, it's just been a little while since I saw some Lumet, and I just really wanted to um, to to watch something like that again. And I don't, you know, one of those you just kind of wonder how that's sort of fallen under 
under your radar for so long. But, you know, of course, being Lumet, I wasn't disappointed. No, imagine like right out of the gate, your first film is 12 Angry Men. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and then it's like Network, Dog Day Afternoon, you know, like he's just so good. And whatever period of his career you look at, I mean, there's just so much good stuff to see. Um, Yeah, that's the way that you can hit the ground running because Alan Rickman's first movie was Die Hard. Oh, right, right. Yeah, so he Man. hit the ground running with that one as well. Definitely. But, you know, Nomadland nominated for Best Picture, and one of the movies that's nominated for Best Picture these days is Mank, the latest film from David Fincher. His 11th feature film, though he would yes. say it's his 10th because he, he's disowned Alien 3. Yeah. <laughs> totally disowned it. Yeah, right. Um, I was reading about that the other day, and the impression that I got was that you know, the original people in charge, like James Cameron and stuff, say, well, it, was, it wasn't it was very good, but it's not David's fault. <laughs> right, right. It seems like it was just kind of, um, you know, he did his best with what he could do, but um, just didn't turn out very good. But yeah, I guess, you know, I guess you have to start somewhere. Yes. And where he's gone since has been pretty incredible. I mean, mm. with Seven, with the game, which I personally love, and then with Fight Club, and the way his career kind of evolved after Panic Room, where he he made the social network, he made the girl with the dragon tattoo, he brought on some incredible collaborators with uh, Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross. He went on to make Gone Girl. He's been involved with Netflix very early on with House of mm-hmm. Cards and then Manhunter. And I think there's a... Mindhunter. Ed- Mindhunter. Did I say Death Hunter? You said Manhunter. <laughs> yeah, the Michael um, Michael Mann movie, I think. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Um, Mindhunter. <laughs> Mindhunter, which is one of my favorite series of, like, going right now. Um, yeah. A bit in a hiatus right now, though. Indefinitely. That's what he said. Like, it's been so tough, I think, to, to be that closely involved with the series that he mm. couldn't really make features and do that as well. Um, and I think he did an animated series or executive produced, what is it, uh, Sex, Love, and Robots or something like mm-hmm. that? I mean, he's definitely got his fingers in a lot of pies these days. Um, but, and I, you know, I, there are some movies I kind of forget are David Fincher, like Alien 3. I sometimes forget, oh, yeah, that is a Fincher film. Right. And The Curious Case of Benjamin Button. I'm like, oh, wait, yeah, that's right. That was a Fincher movie as well. Yeah, yeah. He's always kind of open to making like odd or surprising choices. I mean, Mank for me was a very kind of surprising film in that it was a Fincher film because just the subject matter of it didn't really feel like something Fincher, you know, is is known for. Well, I don't think anything feels like Fincher and Mank. I mean, it doesn't look like a Fincher movie, and that's something that we can go into more depth about. But uh, what did you actually think of Mank? It's right now it is leading the Oscar nominations. It's got 10 nominations. Right. Well, before I get into my thoughts, I mean, just a quick synopsis of the film, because there's a lot to unpack in terms of the history of the film, because it is kind of a biopic of a real person, Herman J. Mankiewicz. And it centers on three months in 1940 when Mankiewicz wrote the first draft of Citizen Kane. And it's interspersed with flashbacks from the 1930s showing his rise and fall in Hollywood as he goes head to head with studio heads like Louis B. Mayer, uh, Irving Thalberg, and attends lavish parties hosted by media mogul William Randolph Hearst. And I think 
you know, one thing that's interesting about it is I think Gary Oldman's performance as mm. Mank, because this was something that they talked about. Um, Oldman was really open to kind of transforming himself physically to look like Mankiewicz. You know, Mankiewicz right. looked much older. He's been doing older. that lately. Like he did it with uh, Winston the Darkest Churchill. Hour. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, if you look at pictures of Mankiewicz, I mean, he looked much older than his age, I think due to his heavy drinking and smoking and whatnot. Um, he, you know, he had a receding hairline and stuff. And one thing Fincher told him is, no, I don't want you using anything I don't want you hiding behind anything, you know? I want you just, it's okay if you don't exactly look like him because mm. I want you to just be like totally exposed as a performer. And I, I thought Oldman really does a good job of kind of always being the center of attention in the room, just kind of walking into it and, you know, using his wits and his just kind of conversationalist abilities to just totally kind of capture your attention in every scene. Yeah, that that's kind of what you're gonna get in a Gary Oldman movie. I mean, he's really just gonna leave everything out there, and his performances are always interesting, if if nothing else. Definitely, definitely. Like he's, you're never really bored in an Oldman movie, and he can be a little bit more kind of, um, kind of reserved, um, and then he can be just so totally over the top, like he is in The Fifth Element, you know. Yeah, or uh, Leon the Professional, right? Mm, yeah, he can just he can really chew the scenery. He can be really hammy, and he's he's got his hammy moments in this too. Definitely, definitely, but they're always enjoyable. Like I think yes. good actors when they chew the scenery are just like fun to watch. Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a fine line though. It can it can really backfire on you uh, sometimes. Yeah, uh, there's this <laughs> great meme uh, that says like you're walking down the street and someone yells "cut," and you've been in a Gary or you've been Gary Oldman playing you the whole time. You know, like he's, he's one of these guys who just kind of like throws himself into a role and yeah. totally transforms himself. And like, I know for this film, he did a ton of research uh, right. on Mankiewicz and was constantly pushing Fincher to like get in more of his one liners. Cause you know, mm -hmm. he would, he would read his biographies and stuff like that and be like, Oh, can we put in this line? Can we, you know, there's so many good lines and yeah, I think that's really cool. Like as a performer that he, that he does that. Um, yeah. W what do you think of the film overall? Uh, it struck me as, um, very unfincher esque, um, for, for better or worse. Um, because to me, you know, there are some things that make a, a Fincher movie feel like a Fincher movie. Fincher's use of color and things like that. Um, and so to have a black and white movie like this is is very different. Um, Fincher typically does kind of thriller films, and there's that's not at all what this is either. Right. Um, but that's neither here nor there. That's just kind of a general feeling. Uh, I thought overall my biggest criticism of Mank was that it just didn't really feel like there was enough to really make a movie of... So, for instance, I'm going to take, for example, that uh, that that Tom Hanks movie, Sully, about the the captain, the pilot who lands the plane in the Hudson River. There's not that there's not much to that movie either. So they have to show the plane crash twice. Right. And so this is one of those things where it's about him writing the first draft of Citizen Kane. So a lot of the flashback parts kind of came across as a bit of filler to me. Like They just had to sort of pad the running time. There's just they wanted to make this movie about this one thing, but. I don't know, there just wasn't enough, so they had to kind of just make it a bit of a, a biopic of Herman Mankiewicz. Um, 
And overall, the only other movie by Fincher I could say ever kind of bored me a little bit was The Curious Case of Benjamin Button. And I would say Mank right. is maybe another one that sort of did, uh, was a little bit on the dull side. I'm a little surprised that at how much reverence it's uh, it's really getting, actually. So it was a bit of a mixed bag for me. The performances are really fun. Amanda Seyfried is a lot of fun to watch. And Gary Oldman, of course, is is really great. And I'm always I'm always impressed by the modern-day legacy of Louis B. Mayer because whether it's him in this or him in um, the movie Judy, he always comes across as this larger-than-life figure who's really intimidating and just this grand character that we're still making movies of but overall not not my favorite fincher film yeah i would agree with pretty much everything you said i found it a bit dull i Mm. I think part of this probably just is is inherent in how it was written you know this the script was written by david fincher's father jack yeah after he retired he used to be a journalist at life and he wrote a, a first draft i think in the 90s and you know, spent a lot, a lot of time, kind of bringing it to life. Um, I think the uh, the number of drafts he did it was something like eight or something like that. Um, one thing that he initially based it off of was uh, Pauline Kael's essay uh, "Raising Cain," which argued that Wells didn't really write a single word of Citizen Kane, that his role mm. in it was kind of overstated. And that Mankiewicz was the film's real visionary. Um, right. She actually called Wells in that essay perhaps the greatest loser in Hollywood history. Hmm. That's a quote. Wow. Um, what's interesting is that that was written in the early 70s. After it was written, a number of people like Peter Bogdanovich went through the research. They looked at you know interviews with Wells. Bogdanovich actually interviewed Wells himself. They talked to Wells' secretary. They looked at records from RKO. And they actually proved that Wells had worked on the last three drafts of the script and had a very significant hand in writing it. And what's even crazier is that they actually found out that Kale based a lot of her essay on another researcher's work and she didn't give him credit. Ah, So she was actually doing the thing she accused Wells of. Mm, Right. Yeah, I I do know that that was sort of... um discredited in that it's known now that Orson Welles at least did have a a bit of a hand in the writing of Citizen Kane. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Like he was known to, even with finished scripts, to rework them while he was shooting. Mm. And um, so I think, you know, Jack Fincher kind of probably saw this, you know, saw some of the uh, attacks on Kale's work and kind of you know, worked over it over the course of eight drafts to include a lot of other history of the time. I mean, there's this interesting subplot of uh, the uh, gubernatorial race. Is that what you call it? The, the race yeah, for governor? The, yeah, the race for governor. That's right. Yeah. Uh, Upton Sinclair uh, was running for um, governor of California in 1934 uh, against his Republican opponent, Frank Merriam. And you see in the film that Sinclair actually you know, kind of vows to make California more like socially democratic and early on had like a two to one edge over Merriam and Irving Thalberg, who was MGM's former head of production and Louis Mayer actually kind of helped pioneer the attack ad and created all these fake newsreels against Upton Sinclair that eventually led to him losing the, the governor's race. And so that's a bit of history that is kind of included in this, I think because the 
revisionist take that Kale had presented and that Jack Fincher based his original script on proved to be kind of un- unsubstantiated. Well, also, it's very topical today with fake news and misinformation and conspiracy theories and things like that. So I, I didn't I wasn't really thinking about the um, that aspect of it, but I was thinking about how this is definitely in here as a comment on how, you know, maybe the more things change, the more they stay the same. Yes, yes, definitely. And that's something that he said, like, they initially tried to make this movie in the 90s, I think maybe the late 90s, they were going to go ahead with Kevin Spacey and Jodie Foster. Oh, okay. And the studio nixed the film because they didn't want it shot in black and white. And (laughs) Fincher insisted on it. So yeah, they didn't end up doing it. And it kind of lingered for about 30 years before they finally turned it into a film. Um, What's interesting is that if you actually look at some of the historical details, like aside from the film kind of suggesting that Kale's take on the writing of Citizen Kane was true, or at least it gives some credence to it, doesn't, you know, wholeheartedly agree with everything she said. Um, That's kind of questionable. What's also questionable is that Herman Mankiewicz supported Upton Sinclair. I mean, apparently he was kind of a little bit more conservative than, you know, than all that. So he may not have supported Upton Sinclair at all. Mm. And uh, apparently, though, his his personality was very well represented. Ben Mankiewicz, which is his grandson um, and a guy who works at uh, Turner Classic Movies and the Young Turks, has basically said, like, this looks exactly like what I heard my grandfather talked like. You know, like this really seems accurate. Um, Also true, apparently, is the fact that Mankiewicz sponsored hundreds of German refugees fleeing ahead of World War II. Mm, Um, So, I mean, that's that's really interesting. Also, apparently, Louis B. Mayer just like, you know, was one of the biggest assholes of all time. Yeah, Um, well, that's why they keep putting him in movies today where he's, you know, he's he's being a jerk to people and he's being really intimidating to a really young judy garland and things like that so yeah i mean he's he's in you know they're still making movies about him yeah he was you know a really famous kind of serial abuser like an er early Mm. kind of harvey weinstein type and he actually reportedly did ask all of his employees to take a 50 percent pay cut with the promise that he would pay them back and he never did so yeah just kind of a scumbag yeah um so, yeah, I think there's there's a lot of interesting history there that probably resonated with them. I mean, I think Fincher has kind of said that, b- that both he and his father identified with Mankiewicz's struggle to create within kind of the capitalistic demands of the Hollywood studio system. You know, it's kind of like the struggle of the artist against the, the machine. And, you know, Fincher used to direct commercials and music videos, and his father used to write you know, magazine stories and stuff like that. So they kind of knew what it was like to kind of ha- be forced to work within the system and constantly have to like change your vision to meet the demands of studios and, you know, publishers and stuff like that. Yeah. I mean, that is, that's kind of mank right there though. You know, it's, it seems like it's, it's about, it's about, Mankiewicz writing Citizen Kane, but it's also about all this other stuff and it gets into the gubernatorial race. And I guess that's why it just seemed to be kind of all over the place and a little bit, uh, a little bit not so focused, in my opinion. 
Yeah, yeah. I think what they're going for is kind of, you know, the artist against the machine, but also Mankiewicz's evolution. Because there's a quote from Fincher where he said, I was fascinated by the notion of a guy who was on record so many times decrying the shallowness and hopelessness of cinema, finally saying, wait a minute, I want this one on my headstone. And so, you know, him fighting for credit on Citizen Kane and him kind of like making this a personal work, kind of decrying, you know, Hearst and even kind of in a weird way, kind of attacking Marion Davies, like even though it seemed like they were friends and that was weird. Um, They seemed really close. Like she seemed like a, a really cool person. And then to kind of portray her in Citizen Kane as this like, you know, talentless hack was weird. He, he later clarified that he was, that wasn't her, but I mean, why would you leave that open to debate? Like that seemed like kind of an attack on her, at least like, a misunderstanding that could have been easily avoided. Yeah. There's another uh, good David Fincher quote, and this could maybe be um, the way, something that we talk about when we discuss more Fincher's films um, is people are perverts. That's pretty much been the basis of my career anyway. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, That's, that is an interesting one. And, you know, kind of does make you think about the the characters in in his movies but those are our thoughts on Mank but let's talk a little bit about Fincher and some of the other movies that he's done and why we think he's so special. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think just to kind of finish off the Mank discussion, I mean, one thing that Mank does in terms of Fincher's overall career is probably try to make a political statement um, more than maybe any other film he's done, you know, because I think there's not only the fake news angle, but there's the kind of monopoly studio angle. Uh, David Sims noted this. He said, like, since Disney's acquisition of Fox in 2019, Hollywood is the most centralized it's been since the golden age. Mm. And so I think that's probably on Fincher's mind, someone who just signed a four-year deal with Netflix that, like, hey, this system that has been like, you know, responsible for all the greats of cinema no longer allows like a movie like Chinatown to be made. And so part of him making Mank, I think, is him commenting on the fact that the studio system is kind of like no longer making movies like Citizen Kane. It doesn't allow an artist like him to function anymore. And I think he's probably saying like, it's just so inherently corrupt And it just tends towards monopolies that it will always kind of like, you know, crush the artist in just the the gears of its machinery and kind of, you know, force a lot of artists to compromise. I mean, there is that friend of Mankiewicz's, which does end up like directing these attack ads. And he's just like so, you know, kind of eaten up by it that he ends up, you know, committing suicide. Well, I guess... I guess he knows what he's talking about because as we said, his very David Fincher's very first movie was Alien Three. So I mean exactly. that's not some small art house film. You know, that's the third film in um a franchise. It wasn't quite the, you know, modern day franchise back in nineteen ninety two that it is today, but back then I feel like franchises like the MCU, they, you know, they didn't really exist in the early nineties. So uh Alien Three was as close to 
as close to it as as it as it comes or as it came back then. So yep. he knows a thing or two about compromise because he's he's made the big blockbuster film in Alien Three, and he's he's also kind of embraced Netflix and done smaller things like Mind Hunter and and Mank and, and things like that. But he also knows what it's like to be Orson Welles. And I think that's key. You know, he probably identifies as a, I think he's 58 now, more with Mankiewicz, more with his father, um, you know, Jack Fincher. But when he was directing Alien 3, I mean, he was in his early 20s. He was like 25. He'd been given this huge budget, which was unheard of for a guy that age. And so he probably felt a lot like Orson Welles. You know, it's like I've been given the keys to the candy store. And, you know, instead of making Citizen Kane, he ended up kind of being just overwhelmed by the studio system and their demands and wasn't able to make the great film he wanted to. So he's probably looking at this from both angles. I mean, Alien 3 itself was was shooting without a script. So, I mean, that's, you know, he was just handcuffed. And from the beginning (laughs) coming into a project that he didn't really envision, like it was already kind of laid out before he brought, he's kind of brought in as a hired hand. It's kind of like Stanley Kubrick starting his career with Spartacus. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's instead of Spartacus is just not so good. (laughs) Right. Right. Um, Yeah. So, I mean, I think a lot of Fincher's career as a whole, it is, it is kind of a statement of his career in Mank. You know, just looking back at where he's come from, where, where, where he's, you know, been, where his father came from and their struggles. And yeah, I mean, in that respect, I like it. I just think it doesn't quite gel. I mean, one other thing I wanted to mention, too, was just the production of it. They tried to make it look like a movie from the 40s. And apparently they shot it with like old style lights with rear projection. They put a lot of like dust and scratches on it and used old mics and stuff like that. But they shot it digitally and it just it has a weird mix of like really clean, clear looking and just kind of like artificially like scratched up. You see Mm -hmm. the cigarette burns when you're supposed to, you know, change reels. They actually added those in. Yeah, yeah. I noticed that as well. And uh the the term cigarette burns is actually something I learned from Fight Club. Oh yeah, yeah, right, right. That's you know when you're watching that it's like 16. That's kind of just the thing that you uh, that you learn. Um, but you know Fincher's films are usually quite financially successful. I mean Alien Three even on like a budget of 60 million or something making 160 million. Um, the, the Social Network grossing well over 200 million dollars uh, with a much smaller budget than that. Gone Girl approaching 370 million. So it doesn't matter if he makes a big movie like Alien 3 or something a bit smaller, he's still a box office success. Definitely. Um, Definitely. You know, even when he has to make uh, Alien 3. And I wanted to ask you, what's the first Fincher film you actually watched? Oh, that's a good question. It was probably The Game. Oh, cool. Probably The Game. It was one of those things where, you know, my parents must have rented that. And I just sort of watched it with them on some evening. I was just up. Um, but, you know, that was, I do remember that was quite a riveting thriller movie. I and just rewatched that like two weeks ago. Does I it think. still hold up? Yeah, I love the game. Like it's it's kind of ridiculous in a way. Yeah, like yeah. The, the fact that, you know, 
it would be possible to set up this elaborate game, like just the the plot holes that you could, you know, find. If you really wanted to poke holes in the, right. the concept of the movie, it's very easy. Right. right. But I mean, it's, it, but you know what? It, it's still, it's still a fun time. You know, it's still, it's still enjoyable, I'm sure. Yeah. I mean, it's just, what's great about it is, is not only Fincher's direction and he just has such beautiful control over his filmmaking style, you know, the, the kind of uh, look of the film is very Fincher-esque, you know, very dark. There's a lot of uh, kind of really harsh lighting, you know. I was going to uh, say, like, every Fincher film except for Mank seems to have a lot of this sort of soft yellow lighting in it, kind of with a mix of gray. There is, that's kind of more of a recent thing. I think he always has this kind of harsh fluorescent lighting. You know, like Fight Club, I think once he switched to digital, he started doing a little bit more of the kind of yellow, soft yellow look that you see in, uh, for example, the social network. Um, but there's always kind of like a a very nocturnal feel to his films um, that I really love. You know, like The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, I love the look of that film. Well, I think it gives his movies a very a very foreboding feeling. Like there's always this kind of sense of dread in a David Fincher movie. Right, like right. Something's not quite right, and it's even it's even in something like the Social Network because right. the the Mark Zuckerberg character is is just so off. There's something so off about him and the way that he's kind of behaving throughout the movie. But right. that to me is what makes a Fincher movie so enjoyable is that they're always so intriguing and like it's it's really a movie I want to get wrapped up in. Right, right, and he. He doesn't write his own scripts. So, I mean, he, he's very good at choosing the right collaborators. Of course. I think, so, Aaron Sorkin, you yeah. know, you can't go wrong with him. Right. And, you know, his, his choice of composers and cinematographers. I mean, he worked with Howard Shore on the game. He, you know, started working exclusively with Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross with The Social Network. And, I mean, I think they're maybe the best composers working right now, other than Johnny Greenwood. Um their scores are, you know, it's some of the few scores that I just put on and listen to walking around, you know. Um, so, you know, he's kind of got a very good collaborative process. If, if you, you know, listen to interviews or, or look at interviews with his collaborators, they all say, like, he's an incredible taskmaster, but he really does, like, want everyone to be at their best. And he will test everyone to make sure that they are. Because... A Fincher film is about refining things until you get it right. And that may mean like 200 takes. Yeah, he is a perfectionist. I think that's something that's known about him. Right, right. Um, yeah, I'm trying to remember the first Fincher movie I saw. I think it was Fight Club, actually. Do you agree with me that Fight Club is one of those movies that you think is really edgy when you're 16? And then it's just not really when you're an adult? I think it's not as edgy. But I, I'm still impressed with the fact that he was able to get this extremely nihilistic film through the studio system. You know, like in today's climate, especially, I think it's just an in, in, impressive feat that he was even able to get this done. Um, I think there's definitely like a kind of frat boy, I don't know, take on the film where it's like, yeah, yeah it's, it's it seems like a really sucks. frat boy meathead favorite. Right, right. But, you know, Full Metal Jacket is too. And like, I, yeah, you could say that it kind of spoils the film 
in a way, but I think they just don't get that, you know, there's another layer to this. There's subtext to the films that actually like this kind of portrayal of masculinity isn't good. They're not trying to say it's good. And if you like, if you think it's cool, you don't get it. Well, you know, there's some of those movies that I watched in kind of my, um, my dawn of interest in movies and some of the ones that I watch the most include things like Reservoir Dogs and A Clockwork Orange yep. and Casino. I mean, these really sort of edgy kind of R-rated movies that I had never seen before. Right. Where something like Fight Club kind of comes across as like now that I'm an adult, it might still be I might still think it's it's good, but it's not it doesn't quite have that edge to it. But something like A Clockwork Orange still maintains it. Right. It's something like Fight Club to me feels like something you can grow out of. Yeah, fair point. It, it's definitely not on that level. You know, it's not like as a tourist as as a Clockwork Orange, where that's just like so singular a vision that, you know, it, it stands up to any sort of scrutiny, I think. Whereas, yeah, I think Fight Club could be accused of kind of being like a meathead movie, uh, even though I, I don't think ultimately it is. But there's an element of that, like, that kind of, I don't know. It that's dips a good point. Toes. Is it that movie, or is it just kind of been ruined by the bros who love it? <laughs> right. You know? The reason why the reason why I was wondering about this is because there's someone that I know who, when he saw that movie in high school, he and his friends actually started their own fight club. So maybe that's kind of the the sort of people that that i don't want to say the sort of people but like that sort of energy that that movie sort of really appealed to you know there's definitely kind of an infectious sense of self-destruction in the film that Mm. i also get it from like say listening to nine inch nails the downward spiral but i love that album (laughs) you know like it yeah right there is something (laughs) about it that i think can be misinterpreted and you know when you're a teenager or a young guy watching it yeah, it might just seem cool, like the level of self-destruction. But as you get older, I think there's another way to interpret the film, which is probably more in line with the, what they were thinking, which is that this is insane. This is madness. You know, like there is uh, this kind of energy taken to its you know logical conclusion is just destruction, you know. Yeah, and I suppose a movie all about nihilism, you know, if life is meaningless, and what better thing to do than to just destroy yourself? Yes, yes. Yeah, so maybe that kind of, uh, when you are 15 or 16 or something, that point kind of goes over your head a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Uh, One thing I wanted to talk about, which is something that really struck me the last time I watched the game, and I've kind of been thinking for a while about Fincher, because I know, you know, we had talked about doing something on him at some point. And something that really struck me about Fincher was the theme of control in his films. And I think a lot of people interpret this as like his desire for control, you know, like in the game, in, you know, the the social network and, and the Mark Zuckerberg's characters, like desire for power and control and, and whatnot, um, you know, the desire for self-control and fight club the uh the various kind of power battles over control that happen in like seven and uh the girl with the dragon tattoo and gone girl and the kind of like obsessiveness of the villainess's plan you know and how like meticulously it's laid out this is a theme that runs throughout all of his work and i think that's definitely true i think in a way he's kind of like uh 
exploring his own obsessiveness with control. But I think there's another layer of that, which is more interesting, which is really brought out, I think, in the game, maybe more than anything, which is like the fantasy of control. Because I think what makes Fincher interesting is not just like these kind of dramas over control and, and power battles and whatnot, but the kind of like fantasy that things are controllable. You know, like one of the things you have to buy into watching the game is that it is possible to control you know, this much, that it's possible to set up a conspiracy that's this, like, you know, uh, meticulous and whatnot. And I think in a weird way, there's something optimistic about that, mm, you know? Yeah, I, that, 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 that makes sense. That kind of reminds me of the the end of The Curious Case of Benjamin Button when Brad Pitt's character who's aging backwards and he starts off as an old man and then surprise the movie ends when he's just a little baby. Right. There's this kind of, I mean, Kate Blanchett's character seems to really believe it, but it seems like she's just fooling herself at the same time because she's sort of just, just looking at this infant right. and say, says that she, she knows I'm paraphrasing here, but like she, she knew that she saw a spark of recognition in the baby's eyes. Right. When he looked at her. Right. And you just think, well, that's nonsense. Definitely not. Yeah. But that could be something similar where it's just, it's a fantasy of control in that sense, because you really just don't want this person to go this way, or you really just don't want your relationship with this person to end this way. Well, the, the alternative is that there's like a, a higher set of powers, you know, nature or what have you, that are totally irrational and outside of human control. And which one is scarier? The idea that there's this all-encompassing conspiracy that can, you know, meticulously control your life, or that there's a power that's totally irrational and totally beyond control. Definitely the mm. second one is scarier. I mean, yeah. So, yeah. so for all the darkness in Fincher's film, there is this kind of like uh, fantasy, like this, this social imaginary of control and the fact that things can be controlled. And I, I think you see this theme appear in different guises throughout his films. And, and the way it's kind of balanced and expressed in his films basically determines for me whether they're good or not. Like, for example, I think Panic Room is one of his weaker films. And I think one of the reasons is because the that subtext, that fantasy of control is text. You know, it's it's not kind of this... Uh, imaginary supplement that you as an audience member have to buy into, but it is the literal text of the film. It's the idea that this home is kind of like this giant puzzle and there's a fight for control over it. You know, I mean, Fincher apparently literally built an entire five-story uh, townhouse. And before production began, he shot and edited a pre-visualization of the entire film. Mm, so like yeah. that theme that subtext of control is the text and therefore it it's very cold it's very clinical because it doesn't kind of exist in this imaginary realm where it's more interesting but it's just the you know the cold clinical stuff of the actual text of the film whereas you know if you go with the game but also like i don't know let's say something like fight club i mean you also have to buy into a somewhat of an absurd you know uh concept and conceit that it would be possible 
for this guy to be two different people. Like a fugue state probably wouldn't actually be able to be sustainable beyond like a couple of hours, let alone like months where you're like your other identity is setting up all these plans and you don't know about it. You know, like you have to buy into the absurdity of that. And I think what's interesting is that after the social network, that fantasy element of control ends up kind of becoming the internet in a way. Because Mm. with the social network, it is part of the text of the film. He's making this literal social network. But I think there's a lot in that that's kind of like a little bit magical in a way, like the fact that he can control this much, the fact that there's you know, he's able to exert this much power over people's lives. I mean, you see it again in The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo where it's like, oh, she's a hacker. She can hack into anything. And it's like, I'm sure some of that's possible, but there is there is a bit of a magical reasoning there where it's like, how did she do it? Oh, she's a hacker. Well, yeah, I know. I mean, hacking in movies and TV is often quite ridiculous. I mean, what is that? I think is that show castle or bones i get i get it confused one of uh, joss whedon's favorites uh is in it fillion or, or boreanas but like they're trying to hack into something and but it's like two people just furiously typing stuff on a keyboard and it's just <laughs> it's it's just silly i mean and it's like the girl in jurassic park in the mid 90s who for some reason knows how to hack into stuff <laughs> there's always a scene of like a a 40 year old guy with like black rim glasses that have like a red tint on them and like yeah. dyed blonde hair sitting in a cafe on his laptop, just like, you know, setting off a bomb somewhere. Yeah, right, and, right, right. That's something straight out of 24. Yeah, you know? yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, but, um, you know, I mean, I thought Panic Room is maybe a little bit just more of a straightforward thriller than some of, of Fincher's other movies. But I think I think Panic Room still manages to be very successful in that it does feel... Like it's not, it doesn't feel like it's just a run of the mill home invasion movie. Definitely. It does, it does have its own uh, real differences and the performances from everybody are really strong in it. And I mean, it is a very, it is a real thrill to watch it and it does kind of avoid cliches. You know, I know you and I weren't that, that fond of us in large part because us does eventually just sort of feel like another home invasion movie, but panic room still feels very unique. Yeah, I mean, it's a Fincher film. I mean, there there's an yeah. element of meticulousness in the planning and whatnot that is kind of thrilling to watch. His style is always interesting. I just think what what doesn't what makes it not work as well for me is because it's missing that subtext, that kind of fantasy element of... It's almost like watching a Hitchcock movie in a way, where like when you're watching Vertigo, there is this kind of like dreamy subtext throughout the entire film where it it almost feels like you're living in a dream where there's something Mm. like kind of imaginary supplementing the entire reality of the film and and for Fincher you get that through this kind of like notion of control that things are controllable and I I think it adds a richness to his films that I, I really enjoy no, I know, I know what you mean. There is this kind of sort of, it's one of those things where I can't really describe in words so much, but it is definitely a feeling I get where there, there is this sort of dreamlike haze to a lot of his movies. And I think it even exists in something like The Social Network. Right. And perhaps it's the fact that there is this person that if it weren't for the internet would just be a loser and would just be totally powerless in a world that's too big for him. Right. But he does somehow manage to become so influential 
and such a big deal. And of course, in a movie that is a fantasy like Benjamin Button and um, and and things like that. No, you're right. There is definitely a kind of a kind of dreamlike state to a lot of his movies. Gone Girl. It's very strong in Gone Girl as well. Definitely. Definitely. But I'd say, yeah, Panic Room, it doesn't really exist in Panic Room. Yeah, and and Alien 3 as well. I mean, I should say 7 is the only Fincher movie I haven't seen all the way through. Because mm-hmm. I, I tried to watch it. Actually, I, I said before Fight Club was the first Fincher movie I watched. I think it was actually 7. Oh, okay. My parents and brother or sister, someone rented it, and we were watching it. And like I, I as a teenager, was so freaked out by the imagery like the especially i think the sloth guy who's just like he's barely kept alive within an Mm -hmm. inch of his life and they think he's dead and he he, it looks like this rotten corpse and then he like they get closer and he starts coughing yeah and i'm like to this day i cannot watch the movie you know it's just (laughs) traumatic it it was so like horrifying that i i I still can't see it yeah yeah fair enough fair enough uh, the only one that we haven't mentioned is Zodiac. Do you think that that kind of exists in Zodiac as well? That's so weird because I think that's my favorite Fincher film. <laughs> I don't know why I forgot yeah. that. Um, <laughs> no, I, I mean, that's probably strongest in Zodiac, um, where it's just like this this notion that there is someone out there, you know, kind of pulling the strings in such a meticulous way that it's beyond human understanding almost. You know, it's almost supernatural. And it's interesting because Fincher actually, you know, lived and grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area in the late 60s and 70s when the Zodiac Killer was like terrorizing the area. So I think for him, there's very much a personal element to that. Um, But there's also just kind of this like, you know, the, the, the subtext of like the game or Gone Girl is portrayed in such a way where it's like instead of you seeing the killer or you know seeing things from the getting a a final reveal of what this whole thing is about what the conspiracy is it's constantly kept from you in this almost maddening way where it's like you know what is it who is it there's so many dangling clues there but you never quite figure it out Mm. And I, I mean, David Fincher must have really liked that theme because he does explore that further in Mindhunter, too. Definitely. Definitely. And I think it's such a fascinating time period where it's like they're trying to, I guess, create a, a, a roadmap to the human psyche and create these profiles that will allow them to kind of deal with the fact that, you know, there's a new level of horrificness in America, that there are these crimes that don't make sense it's not like you stole money or you you know you slept with my wife and i'm going to kill you it's like i want to like kidnap women and you know like turn them into lamps it's like why like what could lead a human to do this you know and like it's fascinating that he kind of that directly mirrors transformations in american society yeah i mean he certainly has kind of a a fascination with really i mean for lack of a better word dodgy people yes you know i mean the fincher's movies often deal with people like you know like serial killers and i mean like people like the like brad pitt and edward norton and fight club um 
and things like that. I mean, he certainly does have, maybe that's why that's what that quote means is that people are perverts and that's kind of the bedrock of his, <laughs> of his career. Oh, definitely. That's sort of the type of people that he's exploring. Well, he would much rather, um, you know, sit with a Mark Zuckerberg type character, you know, for two hours than like a good guy. You know, I, I don't think he's particularly interested in like good, wholesome characters. He's interested in people like, Either whether, you know, Mankiewicz, where he's this very, like, witty guy who ultimately takes a stand for art, but he's also this drunk who's, like, a total wreck in his personal life. His wife has to, like, take off his socks every time he gets home. Mm. Um, or, you know, someone like the the hacker, the uh, Rooney Mara character in, in The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, where she's kind of this, like, very edgy, damaged human being. Um, even Michael Douglas in the game where he's this kind of like Ebenezer Scrooge character, you know, he's never really interested in the, like the normal people. I mean, maybe that's another thing I would say about panic room is that like, ultimately you're kind of on the side of Kristen Stewart and Jodie Foster. And they're just like the most normie characters in his filmography. Yeah, I suppose that's true. I mean, I kind of came into this conversation thinking that perhaps Mank was the most different Fincher movie, but now I'm starting to think it's maybe actually Panic Room that is kind of the the least Fincher-esque Fincher film. Yeah, though I think Mank kind of is too. I mean, just aesthetically for different reasons. Yeah, aesthetically, it doesn't look doesn't look like a like a Fincher movie. Definitely, definitely. And I Benjamin Button's kind of out there too. Like it's much more of a straightforward drama you know even though i think it's very it's it's you know it's more more pop cinema yeah yeah in that regard like it's uh it's much more accessible there's nothing really objectionable about it i think one of the writers for it also wrote forrest gump oh okay okay which is why I, when i watched it i thought well i just feel like i kind of just watched forrest gump because when you look at benjamin button it's about this person with an unusual life circumstance and he leads a fascinating life and throughout the way there's just this one woman that that just holds him together. Right, right. And that's Forrest Gump as well. Right, right. Yeah, and there's, you know, it takes place in the South as well. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think that's that's definitely true. Um, man, I, I just, like, I his style of filmmaking, the meticulousness of it is something that I don't know if we'll see many other people on his level. You know, like, he's he's a step beyond, even in some ways, Kubrick. I think in terms of his meticulousness over the process, because mm. I think he doesn't have the sort of, or um, whether he doesn't have it or whether he just chooses not to, he doesn't have the sort of versatility that Kubrick did because Kubrick's got the comedy, the war movie, the erotic thriller, uh, the horror movie. I mean, Kubrick was, could just choose genres and you just give him, you could have asked Kubrick to do a mockumentary and he would have made it awesome. Right. You know, right. Um, Fincher is maybe not quite as diverse in that regard. Yeah. Because he does, he does mostly live in the thriller genre. He does. And I think he, I could never see Fincher like doing what Kubrick did in A Clockwork Orange, where he's like shows up on set and says, you know, what are we going to do? What do, how, how can we make this scene better? And let his actor come in with saying like, okay, what if I, you know, do singing in the rain? Like, I just yeah. couldn't see Fincher doing that. I think you'd have to have that meticulous control. He would th have things laid out and it would just be a matter of like, okay, you know, take 100 wasn't great, but maybe we'll get it with take 101. Huh. 
There is a something else I saw that said, "How do you do? How do you film a movie in 150 days, one day at a time?" Right. You know. Right. I mean, it's 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 kind of if it works for takes and it works for for days as well. And I, I actually wonder if the control that he sort of craves that we've been alluding to and talking about is something that he's always had or maybe just a direct a direct influence from his time working on Alien 3, where he mm. just sort of just said, like, I'm, I'm never doing that again. Right, right. Yeah. I don't know the answer to that. I'm just, I'm just wondering. I think it, it probably comes from his background in general. I mean, growing up you know, getting involved with effects early on with industrial light and magic, you know, and kind of learning the technical sides, uh, doing music videos and whatnot, and just kind of, I guess, not leaving anything to chance, not leaving anything he doesn't know about and being able to kind of tell or talk to everyone, you know, all of his collaborators on the same level. Um, but yeah, it's it's fascinating in that respect because there's very there's a lot of directors who will come in and be like, "I hired you because I know nothing about this," mm. and I think Fincher is more of like, "I've hired you because I'm good at this and I think you're a little bit better than me." And yeah, that's I don't know, it's fascinating. Yeah, I mean, he his movies are always fascinating, and that to me is when Fincher is at his best when he's really intriguing, and when when he kind of just brings me into this mystery that I want to really get involved in. Right. You know, that's that to me, that's, that's the Fincher at his best. Yeah. At his worst, I think he can just be a little dull. Right. But that doesn't happen very often. No, I, I think it's probably down to the choice of script ultimately. Yeah. Cause he's going to be very faithful to that plan once it's established and really how much of the script allows for, you know, a, a precise balance between like total technical control and precision and this kind of like brewing undercurrent of like, you know, angst over control and, and whatnot. And most of his movies pull that off very well. Yeah, actually, you mentioned, I mean, we were talking about about his box office success Zodiac, while kind of a box office success, had maybe the one of the lesser sort of box office grosses of of his career, which I don't know if that's surprising or not. Doesn't because of a movie just because a movie's good doesn't always mean that it's going to pull in something big. But um, m you know, movies like Mank, when they come in through Netflix, always kind of skew things a little bit. Especially these days during the pandemic, you can't really tell. Um, you know how the how the crowd is really going to see a David Fincher movie in theaters. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, all right. Two questions. Um, and this is a bit of a hot take. Would you consider Mank his worst movie? And number two, what would be your top three Fincher if you had to, off the top of your Ooh. head, make the list? His worst movie. Yeah. I. I mean. No, I'd still say, I'd still say uh, Benjamin Button is probably my least favorite one that I've seen. Interesting. Okay. Um, Benjamin Button was just, just I don't know, sentimental and not very interesting. You know, that's kind of the impression I remember of it. I w I would still probably put Alien Three or Panic Room 
even though I didn't despise Panic Room, but I just think it's Mank. I'd like to rewatch, despite its dullness. I think there's there's a lot of intrigue there, and it's something yeah. I might have to sit with more. Um, there's a lot I wasn't really counting Alien Three just because it does. It's not a real Fincher movie, you know. Right. Right. Like it's a Fincher movie, but it's not a re- it's not a spiritually a Fincher movie. Um, but I guess my top three favorite Fincher films. Ooh, I'd say The Social Network would be my favorite. Okay. And then Gone Girl. I really Gone Girl is really uh wild and twisted. Love that. Yeah. Uh, when I saw it, when I saw it. And then um you know what? No, I, I I really do like I really do like Panic Room. So Panic Room, I'll, I'll put there too, just because of how 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 you can do a home invasion movie and still have it be refreshing and different is, is quite quite a an achievement to me. Okay, cool. And it's also got uh, Jared Leto with with cornrows. So yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I I also I mean the performances are great with Forrest Whitaker and Jodie Foster as well. You know, so definitely, definitely. I'll I'll, I'll give some love to Panic Room. Okay. But Social Network, Social Network's my favorite Fincher movie. See, I'd probably go with Zodiac. Um, oh, man, this is tough. Zodiac's number one. I'm going to go with... Oh, how do you choose? I, you know what? Maybe, maybe the Social Network second. And in third place, um, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. I really okay. love that movie. Um but man, it's hard not to include Gone Girl. Um, it's really hard not to, I don't know, include the game even, even though it's kind of absurd. Um, yeah. There's something just totally rewatchable about that film. I'm excited to see it every time. I've seen it many times already. Um, yeah, and man, his soundtracks. I, I guess maybe the difference would be a Fincher movie with with Atticus Ross and Trent Reznor doing the soundtrack. It just elevates it beyond you know normal aesthetics you know you're getting something very special yeah he's really found his his groove there definitely those guys definitely yeah yeah fincher is definitely a guy that i always look forward to seeing no matter what it is i mean even if it's a movie that doesn't blow me away quite like mank i mean doesn't matter the next time fincher comes around with something i'm i'm there and apparently he's working on a series on cancel culture right now that's what he's oh, announced okay so we'll uh, have to wait and see yeah yeah we will wait we will have to wait and see well yeah this is now it's dark signing off all about david fincher let us know your thoughts in the comments below definitely and uh like i said at the beginning if you're interested in supporting the channel becoming a, a patron check out our patreon now it's dark you can also check us out on Substack. We're trying that out as well. And uh, check out our YouTube channel as well because we have some essays, uh, visual essays on some of the discussions we've talked about and some content that you won't see on our podcast. So check that out. And we'll be back very soon.